0: Hello, and welcome to the second edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about Richard Dolan's new book titled The Alien Agendas, A Speculative Analysis of Those Visiting Earth. For those of you not so familiar with Richard, uh, he's been a major figure in ufology for decades now, ever since the 90s, when he discovered sort of by accident that UFOs seemed to be a part of U.S. history even though it wasn't officially acknowledged. So he began a decades long journey into trying to see that acknowledgement happen. Only in more recent years has he really delved into the question of what intelligence or intelligences might be behind these UFOs. And this leads him to this book where he actually uh, does some speculation about who might be involved. Now there are six groups that he identifies in this book. We'll be going through each one of them, discuss what the group is like, what the evidence suggests might be their agenda, etc. The first group is an ancient and advanced human group. So that's actually comprised of two groups, a species that visited the earth a long time ago, or perhaps was already here. That's something we'll address later. And then some modification they did to those humans at that time. And so now the group might be comprised of this initial alien species, as well as some humans who were engineered back then. The second group is the mantid slash gray group. And this would involve uh, not only the mantids, but also the short grays and the tall grays. The third group he identifies is the reptilian group. Those are the large lizard-like looking creatures that are quite imposing for many people the fourth group is less talked about um, he refers to them as ebens um, and these are a separate short humanoid group he also identifies one or more additional groups that's sort of like everyone else that we haven't addressed already uh, that some of the evidence seems to suggest there are some other groups involved as well and number six is the potential trickster intelligence like what we might uh, discuss around skinwalker ranch So let's start with the first one, an ancient and advanced human group. Now, Richard writes, in terms of attitude and actions, there doesn't appear to be any hostility coming from this group. The approach seems to have been to standoffishly monitor human activity. And here, Richard points to the outstanding work of someone named Dr. Colleen Clements, who has since passed. Uh, She was a friend of Richard's for about a decade, I think. Uh, She worked both at the University of Rochester and the Rochester Institute of Technology. And this is what uh, Richard says about her. Quote, Dr. Colleen Clements argued that humans are a hybrid race. Our species, she suggested, was probably genetically enhanced by extraterrestrials sometime around 40,000 years ago. She based her case on several factors, the two most prominent being genetic and mythological. The genetic argument comes down to something known as the D allele of our microcephalin gene. The microcephalin gene turns out to be crucial for the development and size of our brain. Genes have parts of them known as alleles, and the particular allele known as the D allele of that gene is very important to our story, to the story of modern human beings. So, let me touch uh, on the high points of this hypothesis. The idea is that at some point, interbreeding was responsible for this D allele uh, that is so key to our modern brain and our ability to learn, to extrapolate, to create. Uh, it really, it's really focused on this particular gene, which came into our species at some point. Again, it varies exactly when, it could be as few as 10, 12,000 years ago, up to 50,000 years ago. Uh, there seems to be evidence that 40,000 is a fair number to pick. Uh, And that's what Richard does. Um, And so if interbreeding is responsible for this gene, the question is, where does this come from? Where did we inherit this from? And initially the thoughts were, it would be either the Neanderthals or a group that was later identified around 2008, which is the Denisovians. What's interesting is uh, so far, we have not found that gene uh, in either of those groups. And there's been a lot of work done on both of them, and yet we have not found that there. So that means perhaps it didn't come from there, and if that's the case, it comes from somewhere else. So perhaps there's a a fourth human group that has not been identified yet, but what Dr. Colleen Clements is suggesting and hypothesizing is this could be an extraterrestrial source, and that this happened about 40,000 years ago. So that's the genetic part. Notice we also said key to this hypothesis is is the mythological component. This is what this is about. So even prior to the Gilgamesh, much uh, epic, much older than that, there was a Mongolian uh, truth story, a creation story about a skydiver god known as Erlik Khan. And the idea is that this uh, figure, a godlike figure, came from the sky and was responsible for this gift to human beings. And so that might be the mythological uh, interpretation of this uh, event that actually happened in human history. Let's move on to the second major group that Richard identifies in his book, the alien agendas. This is the mantid slash gray group. Uh, And interestingly, Richard has grouped these together and there's a reason for that. Uh, he, He sees the evidence as suggesting these groups actually do work together and so their agenda therefore is uh, in common. This is what Richard has to say about the mantid slash gray group. And just to be clear too, the mantid group are the large, like praying mantis type looking insectoid. Uh, they can be seven, eight feet tall, but they look basically like large insects. And the grays, of course, we're all familiar with kind of the gray grayish palette of skin, the large black wraparound eyes. Sometimes they're reported as being small, and that group's known sort of as a subgroup, as a small graves, and then we have the tall graves, who often look to be in charge. This is what Richard has to say. This group seems interplanetary and to have arrived recently in our history. Their appearance is too different as are their behaviors and psychology. Also their technology and science seems to be orders of magnitude beyond what we have been able to contemplate in our own society. And there are indications it might be beyond the advanced human group that is here as well, although that is not a sure thing. By their actions, especially the secret operation of of abduction and hybridization, this group has to be considered dangerous. Some researchers don't see this group as malevolent, but any group that engages in a massive program with such a degree of deep secrecy should cause rational people to be suspicious at the very least. Richard continues, but these actions, or by these actions, the mantid slash gray group appears to be opportunistically trying to influence a world that is developing scientifically at an exponential rate, at least currently. That's an easy motivation to understand, whether it be for profit in some way or simply as a perceived measure of self-defense from a volatile and potentially dangerous species. He's referring to us there. And he continues... This group has been able to act with complete security. World governments, most critically the United States, have knowledge of them and even probably know the location of at least some of their bases of operation. Yet as far as anyone can tell, they do nothing about this. Now, just to touch on something Richard said here again, quote, he said, some reachers don't see this group as malevolent, but any group that engages in a massive program with such a degree of deep secrecy should cause rational people to be suspicious at the very least. Now I understand that that thinking, that mentality. Uh, I think it is rational in a way you can look at it that way. But I also would argue that you could say rationally, we are an incredibly self-destructive species, and we pose a danger to ourselves and potentially to others, and we'll touch on that later. Uh, To a degree that we haven't in our history beforehand, when we were using spears and clubs to attack each other, uh, you know, we might wipe out a tribe um, or a few people from that tribe. Uh, Now we have thermonuclear weapons of uh, just an absolutely insane degree um, that could blow up millions and millions of people and could cause nuclear winter and destroy much of the biosphere of the planet. So when you look at it from that perspective, we are such a danger that I think you could to some degree make the argument that it's a justifiable case of intervention for a group like the Greys. So just to clarify, I'm saying there's there's points on both sides of the argument, and I think uh, rationality uh, lands on both sides of that argument as well. We'll touch on that more later. Let's move on to the next group, the third group that Richard identifies uh, as having a separate agenda. Uh, This is the reptilian group, and this is what Richard has to say. Quote, this is a hard group to figure out. Like the gray-slash-manted group, they seem to be recent arrivals, and like them, they have access to exceptional technology. The experience of Danny's bedroom encounter, this is uh, a reference that he makes in the book to someone who had an encounter with one of these uh, reptilians. The experience of Danny's bedroom encounter with one of these beings shows that they can somehow phase into and out of our reality. By everything that we can determine, the Grays and Mantids share this capability. One conclusion is that they may be interdimensional in some way, but the reality is that we don't really understand how that actually works. And it could be that they exist at another place. As some scientists put it, a theoretical brain, that is B-R-A-N-E, world slightly removed from our own, which somehow they have learned how to navigate. Between the two, he means. Continuing, continuing, Richard says, we don't have the science that fully explains how this could be, but it would help to explain many of the events that otherwise seem inexplicable. The story of Ramon, the U.S. Marine who saw intimidating reptilians working with the U.S. military back in the 1960s, is one of many that indicate communication and collaboration between reptilians and elements of the U.S. government. The reason why any government would want to maintain tight secrecy over this is easy to understand. Stories of abductions by reptilians do exist, but are not as common as those that include graves. They can be frightening, and it's not clear that they are friendly. They may or may not be hostile, unquote. Now, there's a lot to swallow with this reptilian group. Some people just offhand reject it uh, this group because they just look so bizarre and people have a hard time picturing these giant lizards walking around that look kind of humanoid, uh, muscular, but scaly lizard-like skin, uh, very intimidating. Sounds like bad science fiction to some people. And yet there are many, many accounts, uh, that attest to people having experiences with this group. So we have to look into it. And then there's the issue of the U S military's involvement. What is that about? We'll touch on that later as well. For now, let's move on to the next group. That is the the separate short humanoid group known as the ebens. We'll just touch on this briefly because there's less information about this group. Richard writes, to start with, there may not be a single type of these beings. The physical varieties reported seem to preclude that. A number of these entities were reported as looking very similar to greys, with large bald heads and generally short of stature. Only the lack of large black eyes prevents us from lumping them into the category of short greys. Yet they seem to be a distinct group from the greys. Other variations have been reported, including some that seem dubious. One example is the very hairy short humanoids reported during the wave of sightings in South America in 1954. Also, if they really are separate from the greys, it's difficult to ascertain their agenda or motives. Stories of Ebens living as guests of the U.S. government exist, going right back to crash retrieval stories of the 1940s and 1950s. These may or may not be gray aliens. There is a lot of smoke here, but that smoke makes it very difficult to see clearly. Moving on from the Ebens group, which, as Richard pointed out, is difficult to pin down. uh, His fifth grouping is sort of a meta group. Uh, One or more additional groups that have have been reported, uh, people have had experiences with, but they don't fit the above, any of the above. Then finally, there's this sixth group. This is the trickster intelligence. This is what Richard has to say about this group. Quote, we have only had a limited discussion of this possibility. Another way I sometimes characterize this is as a meta intelligence. By this, I mean there appears at times to be an intelligence operating in our world that is of such a high order that it seems to be prescient. And Richard continues, it operates in ways that seem uncanny and many moves ahead of us at every step. The phenomena recorded at the Skinwalker Ranch, some of the most baffling 411 missing persons cases investigated by David Palitz, or the synchronicities reported by Mike Cleland in his Messenger's books speak to this. Many of these cases make it appear that there is a crossover between some of the UFO phenomenon with other parts of our reality, including the mysteries of consciousness, dimensions, time, death, and the afterlife. So just as we discussed last week, here Richard is pointing to various elements of high strangeness, different categories of high strangeness that might somehow all be connected, points of convergence. He mentioned consciousness, dimensions, time, death, and the afterlife. Now, what I would say about this trickster intelligence is that, uh, first of all, it doesn't appear to be extraterrestrial. Uh, There's no sign that it's, you know, tied to that necessarily. Uh, That doesn't mean it's not the case, but it doesn't seem to be that way. Uh, There are, uh, there's evidence that going far back into human history, uh, even Indian tribes in the area of Skinwalker Ranch reported seeing this entity and entities uh, far back in history, and that's where the name originally came from. And while it's the case that usually uh, technology uh, is involved in somehow interacting with us on Earth, perhaps from some other place, it also occurs to me that there may be groups that have an evolutionary uh, ability to what I call dimension hop. Uh, They just, even at an early point in their history, might be able to transverse the barriers between what we consider dimensions or different worlds. And that might be what's happening with this entity slash entities. And this may also indicate they're not necessarily that advanced morally, ethically and such and such, but they nevertheless have the ability to dimension hop, to interact with us in bizarre and uncanny ways. Now that we've identified the six major groups that Richard points to the six major agendas that can be identified. Let's jump to a discussion of the broad strokes, the groups that are supposedly here to help versus those maybe who are here to harm. And some people see the same group differently. And Richard acknowledges that. Regarding the here to help uh, perspective, this is what Richard has to say. Judging from the types of evidence and claims that exist among people with alleged alien contact, it seems possible that there are aliens who want to help us. Of course, we could ask, how could they really help us? that is very likely easier said than done. Given the fact that we have a large number of UFO sighting reports, declassified military documents, and private accounts of UFO events near nuclear locations, it surely seems that someone is concerned about our nuclear technology. Moreover, if you care to believe the many messages that abductees and contactees tell us, these beings believe that humans are making a wreck of the world via nuclear dangers, warfare, environmental degradation, low levels of consciousness, and that we are about to experience, quote unquote, a great change. This message comes through repeatedly, not only from the human looking beings, but also from the greys and other types. Now, again, to clarify, Richard makes it clear in his book that he thinks the evidence of ancient aliens is not that of greys uh, or mantids. He thinks both of these groups are more recently on the scene, uh, within the last century or so, or at least since the beginning of the 20th century. And I would agree with what Richard has to say here. And I'd add that while reports regarding possible interactions with UFOs from ancient history do exist, Richard makes a compelling data-backed case suggesting there has been a massive uptick in interactions, perhaps even in a number of groups here since the dawn of the Atomic Age. Again, those two newer groups being, at least anyway, the mantids and the greys. So that covers the broad strokes regarding the perspective that some of these groups are here to help, that even the greys and mantids are actually here to help. And we've touched on some of the reasons why that might be the case. The huge uptick in experiences, sightings since the dawn of the atomic age, for instance. Of course, there is an alternate perspective, an opposing perspective that sees this completely differently. This group of people are convinced that the Greys and Mantids and groups such as them uh, have ill will towards human beings and do not have our best interests in mind. And Richard definitely makes note of this perspective as well. And he discusses David Jacobs' planetary takeover hypothesis. And Jacobs is probably the most well-known proponent of this idea that Grays and Mantids are here not to help, but to harm and to see their own goals met. And his hypothesis, just to clarify for those who are not familiar with his work, is based on his own regressions that he's done of his clients. He does hypnotic regressions on clients who claim to have been abducted by aliens and then draws conclusions based on the data that he feels he's gathered over time. This is what Richard has to say about this kind of perspective. The best-known exponent of the alien hybrid idea is Dr. David Jacobs. He boils down their program to two words, planetary takeover. Jacobs came to this conclusion, he wrote, due to the consistency of the many abductees he worked with, many of whom described ongoing relationships with the human-looking hybrids, whom he termed hubrids, over the last few decades. As he has seen it, the point is to create ever more human-looking hybrids through an ongoing process of refinement, getting the end result to look almost perfectly human while enabling the hybrid to retain the core mental features of the alien race. The main feature seems to be telepathy and the ability to exert mind control over ordinary humans. His conclusion, this is Jacobs he's referring to, is that the abduction process is common and worldwide. Moreover, it is being undertaken with the greatest level of stealth possible. Abductees report that their hybrid hubrid controllers have sometimes hinted to them of an impending great change, although the specifics of this change are never provided. Jacobs has interpreted it as a takeover of our world by stealth. That is, until it's too late. Now I have some of my own perspectives on Jacob's work and Jacob's conclusions. But before we get to that, let's look at what Richard has to say. Quote, for all the power of Jacob's research and thesis, my own conclusion is that he may well be correct, but incomplete in describing the bigger picture. By Jacob's own research, true hubrids are a very recent development, definitely not earlier than toward the close of the 20th century, maybe the 1980s at the earliest. But there are many cases of perfectly human looking beings engaged in these flying saucers long before. What accounts for them? I don't think this was something Jacobs really ever asked. No matter how great a researcher he may be, it is so easy to overlook inconvenient evidence. Richard's making a really important point here. And I made a very similar point last week in the inaugural uh, edition of this podcast we must make account for all of the data, not just the segments of the data that support our predetermined hypotheses. And by the way, that absolutely goes for me too. I have certain leanings at this point, to be sure. The centrality of consciousness to both understanding the nature of reality and of the phenomenon, for instance. But I will continue to look as honestly as I can at the evidence we garner, all of it. And there is no doubt that while it is not the majority, there is a segment of experiencers who report negative interactions. And this is even after having had time to process and reevaluate the experience over years. I must make account for that just as anyone else must with their hypothesis. Now, regarding David Jacobs' work and the conclusions he's drawn after having worked with clients and doing regressions for years and years and years, I would just add to the discussion the figure of Barbara Lamb, Barbara Lamb is mentioned in, in Richard's book, though somewhat in passing. But for the record, though it's not stated starkly in the book, uh, it should be noted that Lamb came to precisely the opposite conclusions as Jacob's after considering her body of work. And just to be clear, she's done just as many, if not more regressions than Jacob's, uh, including on Dolan's own wife, Tracy, for instance, and that, that experience actually discussed in the book. I once saw an interview with Barbara Lamb, where she mentioned that she had reached out to Jacobs in order to facilitate a shared review of their respective data, but that Jacobs didn't respond. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, It doesn't do us any justice, it doesn't do this cause, this subject, this inquiry, any justice, if we don't consider all the evidence. And you would think that Jacobs would at least be interested in uh, why Barbara Lamb would have come to such different conclusions after having done just as many, if not more, regressions than him. Uh, If a researcher is really open to the data and not committed to a predetermined position, they should always be willing to review the evidence with other researchers. Now, Dolan's book touches on other aspects of the alien history on Earth as well, though we don't have the time to go into all of those. Let's jump to some of Dolan's conclusions in a section called cover up competition and collusion. This is what Dolan has to say, Quote, whoever and whatever these aliens are, wherever they have ultimately come from, it is evident that they are both human and non-human in appearance. They don't necessarily shame the, uh, share the same agenda. Judging by the number of sightings worldwide, even after accounting for cases of mistaken identity, they are here in large numbers. This means they have some sort of active infrastructure, which in turn probably has the protection of the various governments of the world. Now, regarding the fact that many of the key groups, the Mantids, the Greys, etc., are here only recently, uh, when you think about it, just a blink of an eye in terms of Earth history. uh, This is what Dolan has to say. Quote, but to my mind, the idea of a low-key alien presence for most of our history makes perfect sense. The plain fact is that for most of our history, we were not that interesting. However, we might well have been monitored for our future potential. Consider human society back then, a society utilizing primitive muscle power technology, one that only invented writing and the wheel a mere 6,000 years ago, and which only developed science a couple of centuries ago. Anywhere on the planet, human society was one in which people did the muscle work themselves or at most had animals pulling wooden carts and plows. Now, I would add that while I see Dolan's point here, the problem I see with this kind of reasoning in particular is that it applies human psychology to an alien intelligence, and we just have no idea whether or not that would really apply. We just don't know what they would find, quote-unquote, interesting. In fact, there are some who have stated that it is human emotion and drama That some intelligences actually feed on and there has certainly been plenty of that to go around over the course of human history. But Richard's point about the monumental shift humanity has undergone over the last 100 years is well taken. Just think about it. In the span of about a hundred years we've gone from horses and buggies to aircraft to spacecraft to the imminent plans for colonization of Mars. I also agree that there seems to have been an explosion of interest and interaction since the dawn of the atomic age. And the interest UFO intelligence or intelligences has in our nuclear facilities and arsenal is, I would argue, undeniable at this point. Now why would they be so interested in our nuclear arsenal and our nuclear technologies? For our own benefit? To prevent us from blowing up ourselves? Quite possibly, that's a huge part of it. But there might be more than that involved. There has been some discussion amongst those who claim to have been in contact with non-human intelligence that nuclear explosions of this magnitude have ripple effects, interdimensionally even. In other words, even beyond the threat nuclear weapons pose to ourselves, they may pose a new and daunting threat to the larger neighborhood. Now, some may find this idea laughable. How would nuclear explosions have ripple effects interdimensionally? Perhaps it's not even that. Perhaps it's just about the larger biosphere on Earth that we just don't fully understand yet. Uh, It's very clear. There seems to be evidence that there are other species here, ones that can be stealthy, but nevertheless here. Uh, And as Richard has pointed out, they may even live underground, subterranean uh, bases, for instance. And of course, groups like that would be very concerned with our nuclear technology. So I've covered much of Richard's perspectives on these alien agendas, and I've given some response to those perspectives as well. Something else I wanted to touch on before we close. Richard writes uh, regarding the reptilians, quote, but they are presumably looking out for their own interests, as all species can be expected to do, unquote. Now, I actually take issue with this. Um, My perspective is that evolution leads to a sense of oneness. Again, the working hypothesis I'm working with is that this oneness doctrine, this shared consciousness, this one root consciousness behind reality is something that I think some of these other species understand more than we do. And that this perspective uh, leads to ever-expanding circles of inclusion so that meanness, quote-unquote, and we-ness uh, expands so that they don't see us and them the same, that we, same way that we do. Harming you is harming me. In other words, is the perspective I think many of these species are working with. I think that this is what happens as the evolutionary process unfolds. If you even look at human history, it's very clear that that's been the case. Going from me-centric perspectives to tribal, to nation states, uh, to now more planetary perspectives on uh, consciousness and inclusion. And I think we'll bring it to a close here. This is a huge topic. It's a lot for Richard to cover in one book, and he's done a fantastic job. I encourage you to get a hold of the book and read it for yourself. Come to your own conclusions, interact with the different perspectives and the data. And we'll continue to do the same here on the podcasts as we roll them out week to week, trying to engage with all the data, all the perspectives. Uh, So what do you think about this book? Let me know in the comments if you've read it. That brings us to the close of this episode. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this. Hope you found it informative. Whether you've agreed with what I said or disagreed, let's keep engaging. Let's keep the conversation going. That's the whole point behind the Point of Convergence podcast. If you'd like to reach out to me directly, you can contact me at exoacadamian at gmail.com. I'd be happy to hear from anybody. And I hope you'll tune in next week as we seek to engage yet again with this enigmatic topic. Till then, from deep in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is XO signing out.